Our scripture reading for today is 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all are the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the air should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the great honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Regent. Always great to be here with you all. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nathan, and I'm an elder here at the church. Uh, I've been part of this church since around 2012, uh, so roughly about half the life of the church since it began. Uh, and Regen's been through a lot in the last 20 years or so, from moving locations to changes in leadership, uh, from the many births and deaths that have happened uh, within our body, to the joining of lives in marriage, to the, the discovery of enduring friendships uh, among us. So much life has happened in this community under Christ. And today, I really have a lot that I want to share with you, and, and what I'd like to talk to you about is something I've shared individually bits and pieces of with some of you before, but it's, it's this growing sense that something that's been happening broadly in the American church and to some degree in, in the world as a whole has been slowly taking hold here. The signs of erosion of community, the, the loosening of bonds that hold us together, the retreat into private and personal spiritual lives, and the loss of understanding of what it means and what, it, what the practice is of being the body of Christ. This isn't a, a peripheral topic for us as a church. Uh, it's not some tangent that we're going on here. It's really core to the gospel, and I think it's at the heart of the kingdom that God is establishing. So I think it'll be hard to do justice to such a big topic in a, in a single message here, but I ask that you bear with me. Uh, my hope is that God would open our eyes to his word this morning uh, and use this teaching, limited though it may be, to awaken us, to renew us, to remind us of his kindness that leads to repentance. So let's, let's pray together that this would be so. 
Spirit, would you open our eyes, illuminate your word for us this morning? Would we hear from you? Uh, would our hearts be touched and our eyes be open? Lord, as we focus on what it is to be your body, to be your representatives in the world, uh, would you stir in us the conviction uh, of how that can be so? Would any words that I speak today, Lord, uh, that are not of you pass away? Uh, but would anything that I say that is of you, Lord, take hold uh, and take root in people's hearts? I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Part one. This is where I, I ask you some questions. I want to open with a series of questions because Jesus often taught in this way. He would question his hearers and help them to see things in a new light. So the first question is this. What is church. I know many of you probably have definitions that just pop into your head when I ask that question. Uh, definitions that you've learned over the years, and some of those answers may be absolutely right, but you still may be unsure about what they really mean. So what is it really? What is, what is church in practice? What is it practically speaking and not just on paper? Is it a self-help club for the mentally and emotionally weak? Is it a political action group for like-minded and closed-minded people? Is it a community service organization for people who happen to enjoy a, a very particular style of old-timey or, or hillsongy music? We've all had different experiences of church. So my question is, what is church to you? I think even before the pandemic, for a lot of people, uh, maybe for a lot of us in the church, the church looked increasingly strange. In an age and time where neighbors kind of rarely gather anymore for things like intimate discussion, for quiet learning together, for enthusiastic singing, it's just kind of out of place with the world we live in. And the subject matter for these gatherings that we have centers around this ancient book with all sorts of strange practices like animal sacrifices, ancient codes of law, supernatural visions, when you think about it, it's, it's kind of weird. Uh, yet this book that we study is what most Christians regard as having absolute authority in our lives. Here's another question. Why call this regeneration your home? We're not a church where you'll find the most polished preaching, Exhibit A, thank you, with the best produced services or the, the highest levels of musicianship that you can find. We're, we're not even close in all of those things. We have... I would say some pretty hip people, though I, I recognize that as a 35-year-old dad, I've clearly lost touch with what it is to be hip anymore these days. Uh, my wife had to convince me not to wear my new pair of uh, slide sandals to preach in this morning, so clearly not in touch anymore. And there, there are a lot of tempting reasons, actually, to not bother with coming to a church gathering. And yet, like, some of these reasons might be superficial. You don't need to wake up for anything on a Sunday. Uh, you don't need to put on pants. You don't need to search for a parking spot out there. You don't need to tune out the cries of other people's babies. Uh, no need to make awkward small talk with people during greeting times and after the service. For some of you, that's a big win when you can avoid that. No need to stifle a yawn in the middle of a sermon watching you. But other reasons are, are more substantial. Uh, there's, you, you may not particularly like this person or that person here. Or you might be offended by some of the differences of opinion or belief that you find at church. 
Or maybe just in your own life, you've got enough stuff going on that you don't want the messiness and the obligations that come with being a part of a community like this. So lots of questions here. And the last one that I'll ask is this. If church is just these things that I've mentioned this morning, if it's so out of place with the world and with the rest of your life, if it's so inconvenient and so messy, why bother with church at all? Part two, Albania. I want to tell you a story. So Jesus liked to ask questions. Jesus also liked to tell stories. Here's a story that many of you may not know about me. After I graduated from college, I spent two years living in Albania. So there, yeah. Many of you probably know quite little about the country of Albania. For example, I bet many of you probably didn't even notice that the map up on screen is actually showing the country of Algeria, which isn't even on the same continent as Albania. So here it is. Oh wait, no, that's, that's actually Andorra. Right continent, but still not the right country. Next slide. There it is, Albania at last. It's a small country of just under three million people with Greece at its southern border, with Italy out to the west just across the narrow stretch of the Adriatic. Uh, it's a beautiful country whose people and culture hold a special place uh, in my heart to this day. I had graduated from college uh, on the heels of the 2008 recession and uh, I joined the Peace Corps as my plan C when plans A and plan B fell through. But nonetheless, I was, I was really excited to have an adventure, to be in a new culture. And when I arrived, I was, I was assigned to this small town called Selenitz in the southern half of the country. Uh, I was sent there to teach English, to organize some health campaigns, and to try to support the local municipal government there. A fun fact about Selenitz, the town was built up mostly around the mining industry that was there for this mineral, it's called bitumen. Bitumen is this black, sticky stuff that you pull out of the earth that when you combine it with coarse gravel, it, it creates asphalt, what we pave our roads with. Another fun fact is when communism collapsed in Albania in 1990, it was no longer viable to sustain the bitumen mining industry in Selenitz at the level that it had been at before. So the town that I was sent to had once had this population of around 10,000 people, and it dramatically decreased to around less than 2,000 people when I lived there. I share all of this context to explain that when I was assigned to this place that I've been sent to, and in some respects, I was going to a ghost town to serve for 27 months amidst sparsely occupied communist block-style apartments. If you've been to a communist or formerly communist nation, you know what those look like. Uh, roving packs of wild dogs in the streets, long stretches of silence, that were interspersed with the sound of blaring clarinets in the distance, the bleeding of sheep on the hillsides. It was, to put it simply and plainly, the loneliest time in my life. And two things happened at the same time over the course of my two years there. First, I slowly became a bit less lonely. I, I grew more connected to the community around me. I was uh, learning the language, so I, I got to meet my mostly atheist and some nominally Muslim and Orthodox neighbors during my time there. My Albanian language skills improved and they began to trust me as an outsider who'd come into their little community. And they couldn't wrap their heads around why I was there. So I would get serious questions, no joke. They would ask me if I'd been sent to their town as an American spy. 
And I, I would just jokingly reply that, yes, I'm watching your sheep movements, and I'm tracking your supplies of cheese, so watch out. But even, even as my connections to the people around me grew, the second thing that happened at the same time was something more internal, and it moved in the opposite direction. I began to increasingly feel the effects of the absence of having spiritual family present in my life. One of the things that I had brought with me to Selenites was this firm conviction, this belief that I would need to rely on Jesus during my time there. I knew that I'd be tested by the absence of friends and family in my life, uh, by my ongoing struggles with depression, by the hardships of the people that I would encounter there in this impoverished place, their sickness, their poverty, their abuse that they underwent, the, the death, their sense of purposelessness, all of these challenges in the, the world around me. To be honest, I, I never felt utterly abandoned or forsaken by God during that time, those two years. In fact, I know that Jesus kept me rooted in him during that time and got me through a lot of difficult things. But something was undeniably different. Jesus felt distant and detached from my life in this strange new way. I think most of you can kind of maybe understand this or, or relate to this based on recent experience. Think of, for example, the difference between meeting up with your friends and family in person for Thanksgiving, eating food together, laughing, exchanging stories, playing games, just the, the feelings of connectedness and love that are there versus, as, as many of us had to do in recent times, joining a Zoom call to celebrate something like that eating food separately, but at the same time, sharing stories, but maybe having some audio issues, playing whatever virtual games are kind of in at the time. You're still together, in a sense. You're still loving each other, but it's so different, and it's missing something just viscerally and tangibly. In Selenites, Albania, Jesus was there, but Jesus felt less present. He was disembodied. His body was far from me because the body of Christ was far from me. Part three, the fullness of Christ. Regent, I want to tell you something with a, a bit of nuance, and I hope it doesn't get lost in, a, in the sharing of it or misheard. It's this. Jesus is absolutely everything that you need. I wasn't wrong to trust that Jesus could carry me through the hardships of a strange place where I found myself alone. But in Selenites, in something like a time of, of personal pseudo-exile, I learned that so much of the Jesus that I need is not only found in personal prayer, in individual study of the word, or in my own spiritual experience. He's found in a profound and special way, church, in his body. I open this message by asking, what is the church? So let's now at last kind of train our minds on scripture. And may we have ears to hear what God has to say for us today. So in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says this about who we are together as followers of Christ. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. And this is the first point I want to share with you all about what a church is. The first thing is this. The church is a group of people who have been called forth from the world, from darkness into the light, with a purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of God. The purpose of the church is to bring glory to God. And there's something about the way that this happens, this glorification of the Father that is collective, that happens when we've been brought together. The saving work of Jesus is not simply for the sake of securing eternal life for your soul. Here Peter, this disciple who lived and walked with Jesus, is telling it to us pretty plainly. We've been saved by Christ to be a chosen people, a new Israel, through whom God will be glorified in the world. Do you see this, this parallel he's making between receiving mercy and becoming a people? It's happening at the same time. So number one, the church is a people who've been called forth to bring glory to God. Now before I move on to some other points, I, I want to insert just a brief, but I think really, really important point here because we're talking about the glory of God. And, and maybe that just like went straight over our heads as I was just mentioning that. But a lot of us forget or confuse what we're talking about when we talk about the glory of God. Honestly, like I, I think we could do a whole sermon series on this. There's probably 10 different messages we could just teach on this alone, on the, the idea of the glory of God. But for the sake of this message, the glory of God is this. The magnificence, the worth, loveliness, and grandeur of God's many perfections, and how those perfections are reflected and communicated through his creation, through his image bearers, and through his redemptive acts. Let me read that again, because that's a, that's a whole soup of words. The glory of God is the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections. And how these perfections are reflected and communicated through his creation, through his image bearers, and through his redemptive acts. Think of all that God is. Think of how he is compassionate, how he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The goodness that is his alone, how he is the source of truth, he is the source of wisdom, he's the source of beauty. This is our God. When we talk about God being glorified, it's not just, you know, the concept or the idea of God becoming a bigger deal to us in our lives. We're talking about the recognition of all these things that God is and our participation in these glorious things. And let's not forget that in recognizing and participating in these things, it doesn't always feel glorious. Remember that God is most glorified in the cross of Jesus. So our participation in the glory of God by submitting to his will can actually involve suffering and blessing and sacrifice and flourishing and often all of these things at the same time in, in surprising and overlapping ways. Okay, so that's, that's my quick aside on the glory of God, a little mini-sermon for you. Let's go back to where we left off, the church and God's glory. So God's glory is the reason behind everything that God does. It's why he created the universe. It's why he created you and me. It's why, in love, he sent his son to save the world. It's why he's created a people, the church, he wants to fill everything in the universe with his glory, to make everything glorious and reflect 
his magnificence, his worth, his loveliness. But why then, when all creation already exists to glorify God, and when each of our individual lives are capable of doing this thing, of glorifying God through our words, through our acts, through our worship, why then is the church all that special or different from these things? That brings me to the second idea I want to share about what the church is. Let's listen to what Ephesians 1, and 23 says when it's speaking of Christ. It says, And he, that is God, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The second point about what the church is that I want to share is this. The church is the body of Christ. It is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. The church is not just another way among many that God receives glory. It's the actual embodiment of Jesus through which God aims to fill all in all, to fill the whole universe with his glory, to make everything glorious and reflect his magnificence, his worth, his loveliness, all of that through the church, the body of Christ. How mind-boggling is that when you think about it? God didn't exalt Jesus and subject all things to him and then just simply say, hey, now go ahead and, and fill the universe with your glory. Fill all things with yourself. Instead, what he did, he raised him, he exalted him and subjected all things under him and then made him one with the church as head of the body. And he said, now, my son, you and those with whom you are united as head to body, go forth into the universe. Fill it with all that you are in your body. Let everything from the highest heaven to the lowest hell be filled with a revelation of your glorious perfections and magnificence. Did you know that you are a part of that? That that's what's going on here? That when you place your trust in Jesus and become a member of the people, of the body of Christ, you're participating in that work that God is doing. The Old Testament prophets foretold this. So one of my favorite verses is from uh, the book of Habakkuk where he says that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? Entirely. It's like as wetness is to water, so will the glory of God cover the earth. Think of the joy in being a part of that church, the purpose and the hope that we have in, in being alive and striving together in this. I think as Christians, we can often be just so prone to settling for so little, desiring so little from our, our spiritual lives, from our lives in the church. I think our vision of, of what God is doing can really be way too narrow. And our faith can be too timid. Our hearts can be too cold for what God is declaring that he will do in us and through us. One of my favorite quotes is from C.S. Lewis, where he talks about the disparity between what we seem to be content with on one hand and the enormity of what God has for us. He says this, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
How many of us are content to play in a little sandbox and play church uh, without grasping the enormity of what God has for us? If you're like me, your heart might be stirred to this calling to be a church that embodies Jesus and, and fills the world with God's glory. You may be longing to know how. So that leads us to part four, the mystery of incarnation. These are all very lofty ideas, and I think they can sound inspiring and exciting when we look at them on paper. But let's be real here. How in the world is hanging out a few times a week with some other people who share you know, your beliefs about the nature of reality, and you sing together, and you study an old book, how does any of that result in God's filling the universe with his glory? Let me be the first to admit that I think there is mystery in this, um, and it's, it's not a mystery that is easily understood. And it's not just mysterious to us as 21st century Christians. It was mysterious to Paul at the time when he wrote the book of Ephesians. In chapter 3, he had a, a whole chapter focused on this mystery. He says this in chapter 3, starting in verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in their generation, in other generations, as it is now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ, in Christ Jesus, through the gospel, jumping down to verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says he's been called to preach the riches of Christ and reveal the mystery of Christ in order that, he says, quote, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There again is this idea of glory and wisdom of God being made known through the church. And the rulers and authorities here, um, just a quick aside, that it, what it's talking about are these angelic and demonic spiritual forces that are at work in the world. The same rulers and authorities that Scripture tells us that Jesus has been exalted above and given authority over through the cross. But look at what this mystery is connected to in the verses that precede it. It's in the body of Christ itself. Not just that, it's in the, the way that the body of Christ has brought together Jews and Gentiles as fellow heirs to the gospel. What in the world is going on here? And why would that you know, reconciling of Jews and Gentiles be such a huge deal that Paul would call it the mystery of Christ revealed? There's something happening here within the body of Christ that reveals the glory of God to the universe. And now we're going to get to the part of the message where we can start to talk about how and answer some of these kind of so what and now what questions. We're ready for the core passage of, of the message that Tosin read earlier. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
We'll jump now to, to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We see that in the body of Christ there's to be radical unity. You have Jews and Greeks and slaves and free all brought together in one, drinking the same spirit. We also see that there's to be radical equality. Eyes are not more important than hands. Supposedly weaker parts are treated actually as indispensable. Think about it. You can live without an eye, but living without an intestine isn't really an option. Each part of the body is treated with dignity and honor. This keeps each member from being blown up into self-importance. The significance and importance of each part is due to its belonging to the larger body. And lastly, in addition to equality, in addition to unity, we see that in the body of Christ there's to be mutual belonging and care for one another. Here's how the message translation puts verses 25 and 26. I like how this translation says it. The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into exuberance. Regen, when the church behaves this way, in radical unity, radical equality, in mutual self-giving love, something incredible and unimaginable happens. The word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. The body of Christ shines forth a revelation of the glory of God to the world and to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The author Ronald Rollheiser puts it this way. He says, The incarnation of Jesus was not just a 33-year experiment by God in history, a one-shot physical excursion into our lives. The incarnation began with Jesus, and it has never stopped. The ascension of Jesus did not end nor fundamentally change that incarnation. God's physical body is still among us. End quote. Think about that. If it is true that we are the body of Christ, the incarnational presence of Jesus in the world, with Jesus as our head and the Holy Spirit filling and empowering all, then the implications here are huge. It means that as God once acted through Christ, so he now acts through us. What Christ did in and for the world of his day through his physical presence the body of Christ is now to do in the world. I'd like to read a poem 
and it's, it's commonly attributed to St. Teresa of Avila. And I'm, I'm going to read it slowly here, just so that we can reflect for a moment on this, take us deeper into this truth. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks. Compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks, compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth, but yours. They say when, when amputations happen that people can develop a phantom limb. It's this lingering sensation in, in the leg that was there, but isn't there any longer. And it's just this weird, eerie thing to feel something that isn't really quite there. What I think many of us experience is sort of a, an inversion of that, a turning of that. I think it's kind of like the phantom body effect. As members, as parts of this body of Christ, we're a disconnected leg that may think it's connected to the body or, or remembers what that sensation of being part of the body was like. But we need to face the possibility or the reality that might not be so, that your connection to the body isn't really there. I suspect that some of you might find yourselves in your own Selenites, Albania. And I'm not just talking about those who, you know, haven't resumed gathering with the church since the pandemic began, who are watching from home or, or whatever. That's not who I'm talking about here. There are people here who are physically present this morning and who maybe are here most Sunday mornings, who are here but aren't really connected to the body of Christ by much more than association, affiliation. Let me just pause to say that I, I don't want to sugarcoat all the reasons that you might have for not being more closely involved with church community. Some of you may have been badly burned by your past experiences with church, with community. Some at this stage in the pandemic may have really valid health reasons for not returning to gathering. And probably there's a whole other range of reasons that you know, if, if we talked about it, could be brought up. For any of you who find yourselves there, please know that we hope by God's mercy you can reconnect with the body in new meaningful ways that maybe you can return and be present. We don't want to be dismissive of any of those issues here. But the point is this, the body of Christ really matters. We've seen that at an eternal scale where the, the whole universe is being filled with God's glory through her. And it matters at a personal level too, where each member of the body is dependent on the rest, where we need each other. It is through the body, church, that you will experience a greater revelation of Jesus and grow more fully in the knowledge and understanding of our Lord. God doesn't invite us to church because it's a, a comfortable place to 
find a bit of spiritual encouragement, you know, get your dose and go home. He invites us into a spiritual family of misfits and outcasts, of regenerates, as we like to call ourselves here, to love one another and in so doing glorify him. God welcomes us into this home, into the spiritual family that's rarely quite what you want, but it's almost always what you need. There's a whole range of reasons to, to not be an, an integrated member of the church and maybe to drift away from church. But those didn't start with the pandemic. It didn't start with the partisanship that's divided a lot of churches and a lot of people. I think the world cultivates in us all sorts of instincts that push against the vision of the church that Paul had and, and that other New Testament authors had. So yes, I acknowledge that there are many reasons for not investing yourself deeply into this community, but there's one reason that you, you just simply must as a follower of Jesus. And it's this, it's because through these people around you, some of whom you like, some of whom you may struggle to be in the same space with, through these people, God wants to show you his love in a deeper way. It's the only kind of love that can draw us out of ourselves and into a fellowship that transcends the forces that are tearing apart our world. It's an essential part of God's plan for us to find healing together and for his glory to be proclaimed. I want to ask that you evaluate your choice to be here, to be a part of this church of regeneration based on the mission of our church. Inviting people to follow Jesus and experience life with the Holy Spirit. And then also the values of the church. Integrated scripture, whole life service, thriving diversity, and spiritual family. I'm not going to go into each of these into detail or anything like that, but talk to our elders about these. Talk to um, our staff about these. Read about them on our website. Pray. Consider the cost of joining in this mission. If you're joining us, then we ask that you actually commit and that you serve faithfully, that you give your time and your resources in support of this that we're doing together to bring glory to God. Let me step back a second. I just said serve faithfully, give of your time, resources in support of it. Let's filter through some of that Christianese lingo and, and break that down into what it really means. If you show up consistently to our large gatherings on Sundays or attend a home group during the week, or if you seek out those in need and find ways to show care for others. If you just invest, involve yourself, you'll find that the church may not be everything you want it to be, as I said earlier, but you'll find so much of what you need here. You'll find, by God's grace, spiritual growth, friendships, biblical knowledge, practical help in your life. If you don't participate regularly in the body, you won't get the formative experience that it can provide. You won't grow in biblical knowledge through the teaching or in relational depth through praying with others. And hear me out on this. If, if you don't seek the good of others, what's going to happen to you is you're going to learn to judge the church for how it fails to meet your needs and how others fail to reach out to you. I've seen it happen so many times. Remember, Regen, that you are the body of Christ. 
You might be a hand, an ear, or a belly button. Whatever you are, you are essential. We need you. We love you. It's time to leave Selenitz and come home. Let's be radically unified, radically equal. Let us belong to one another and care for one another. The body of Christ is made more complete by each of you. And each one of us needs the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we're humbled by your mercy. That you would choose us to be your people. That you would lay down your life to make us into your body. Lord, that we would not just be a possession of yours, Lord, but that we would actually be the tool that you're using to bring glory to yourself, to bring the revelation and knowledge of you, of all your gloriousness to the whole universe. God, would we have hope in that? Would we be inspired with that light of fire in us, Lord? Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that uh, you've seen fit for this church, this local body, to exist for the last 20 years. For your faithfulness, Lord, uh, throughout all those years, Lord, amidst all the changes. Lord, now as, as our church continues to undergo change, would you continue, Lord, to faithfully provide and Lord, would you bring life into this community in new ways, in, in refreshing ways, Lord. In this body that is broken, Lord, would you bring resurrection? Would you strengthen the fabric of community, Lord, that in loving each other, in serving each other, Lord, and bringing glory to you, Lord, that others might see us, might see the love that is here and say, I want to be a part of that. Father, may it be so according to your will. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. We're going to enter a, a brief time of communion. And communion is often this thing that uh, we talk about in, in terms of individually receiving uh, and remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. But there's such a rich juxtaposition here that I want us to sit in for a bit. So I encourage you to just take your time and slowly let the meaning of this wash over you. At the Last Supper, before laying down his life for the world, we're told that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, had broken it, he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. I'd like for us to consider that communion, this participation in the blood and body of Christ, is not just about you and your individual remembrance of Jesus' work. It's also about what God has done to make us a people. To form us into a body that can be broken, that can be renewed for the sake of the world. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We're going to take communion. If, if you don't have the elements, you can raise your hand. Steph will come around and, and provide those. But we're going to do it a little bit differently today in that we're not just going to receive communion ourselves. I want us each to participate in giving communion to each other. So there's going to be some words up on the screen. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for his new covenant. Uh, and I want you to find someone next to you, someone around you, and I want you to say these words as you give communion to each other. You are receiving this body of Christ broken for you from the body of Christ in our midst, broken for you. So if Luke, if you wouldn't mind coming up, uh, maybe just having some instrumental music at this time, we're going to do that. So find someone around you. This is the body. You are among the parts of the body, the members of the body right now, and offer communion to each other. Thank you. 